fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Wise friends will rescue you. Trust God from the bottom of your heart. Well, hey, again, Journey, it's me, Chris, just over there in the chair. Uh, glad you're here. Glad to see all of you joining us in, in person, those of you online as well. Um, I, I was just going to say uh, glad to see all of Journey Church, but I actually can't see all of you. So uh, here we are. Uh, wow. Really, it's, it's been wild. So we haven't had any gatherings for a long, long time. I haven't uh, stood in front of people for a long, long time, and I already broke the iPad stand. Um, sorry, sorry, Kevin. Um, but it is, it is a gift to be with all of you. It's an it's a honor and a privilege. Um, certainly, we're all here in the midst of tumultuous times, right? Back in Phoenix, like we said, we're not even gathering yet. And so, I mean, showing up here, even trying to balance the like, hey, I don't think I should hug you right now because of this or that. We're wearing masks. Uh, our church hasn't met. So in the spirit of like wisdom, even in consistency to show up here and, and not just like run amok with all of you in here um, is, is a challenge because I, I do want to hug many of you. If I don't know you, that would be weird. And we would introduce ourselves and then we would hug, um, but we can't do that. And so after all of this, uh, for you, those are here, Chase and I'll be outside masked up, trying to do our best to distance and we can, we can catch up and hang out together there, um, just trying to keep it consistent um, in, our, in our own world as well. So speaking of keeping it consistent, I want to begin today by leaning in to the inconsistent life of King Solomon, the man of many proverbs. And so as Bob mentioned, I come to you this Sunday morning in the midst of a series you all have been calling Collective Wisdom, uh, moving through the book of Proverbs, but also a collective of preachers engaging the wisdom literature of Proverbs. I, so I don't think they're implying that those of us speaking are necessarily wise, just that the, the book is a bunch of wisdom. And I'm going to be launching us from Proverbs 22, 1 and 2, and it reads like this. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. But before we tackle the inconsistencies of King Solomon and dive into this passage, let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we gather in this space and we gather in our homes or wherever it is we might be tuning in today in anticipation that your spirit will speak to us. We're reminded, God, that you desire deeply to know us and we in turn desire to be known by you. So would you open up our ears to hear what it is you have to say to us? Would you open up our hearts to receive what you want to do in and through our lives, God? And would you form us into the likeness of your son Jesus as individuals and as a community of people for the sake of your kingdom, God. God, I also pray for myself. I pray that you would give me your words to speak this morning. 
And I pray that everything that I say would be for you and from you and make much of you, God. We lift you up. We want to know you more. And we welcome you to teach us and shape us and make us like your son, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. Okay, so as we begin to untangle what I'm calling the true history of King Solomon, let me be super clear. The book of Proverbs, right, must be held within the entirety of the biblical narrative. And then we must view it through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Because if we don't do that, we run the risk of it becoming a kind of over-spiritualized form of behavior modification. And that's not what we want the book of Proverbs to do. So I'm gonna pose this question at the outset. Is the book of Proverbs, and specifically King Solomon, who wrote most of it, open to critique? And if so, I believe it shouldn't be criticism solely for the sake of criticism, but rather to serve in energizing us to live in this reality that God is for you, Jesus is with you, and the spirit is in you. That's what we want all of this to do, is go into that place. So for the sake of clarity and a bit of review, who was King Solomon? Solomon was the son of King David. And you're probably more familiar with King David, right? He was a king of great renown for serving God and God's people. He had his ups and downs, but he's most famously known as a man after God's own heart. And as King David was on his deathbed, he turns to his son, Solomon, and he gives him this final charge to remain faithful to God and to follow the ways of God. That's what you need to do, Solomon, as you take over for me. So early on, in the story of Solomon's life, there's this really bright moment when in a dream, Solomon is engaging with God and he could ask for anything and he asks for wisdom over anything else. And God grants it to him. And Solomon goes on to build God's glorious temple in Jerusalem, a place for the presence of Yahweh to dwell. It's a giant move for the people of God, the Israelites, when this happens. But after the temple is complete, and it's quite the project, after the temple is complete, it's not long before Solomon starts marrying the daughters of kings from other nations for political purposes. He then adopts the gods of those rulers of the other nations and begins to implement the worship of those gods. From there... Solomon continues to accumulate large amounts of wealth and he builds his own palace to outpace the temple of the Lord. He creates an army and he reinstitutes slave labor to help accomplish his vision. As Solomon reaches the height of his reign as king, he is breaking every one of the guidelines for the kings of Israel found in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. And by the time Solomon dies, he more closely resembles Pharaoh from Egypt than he does his father, David. And all of this overflows from the slow demise of Solomon's self-deception. Hold on. Isn't this the wisest man who ever lived? Right, essentially, 
When all is said and done, Solomon's unwritten proverb would go like this. Do as I say, not as I do. And ironically enough, I looked up that phrase. I wanted to see where it came from. It was coined by a man named John Selden in the 1600s. He was an avid writer and a jurist. He was like a Renaissance man of the time, writing about everything. And he coined this phrase, but guess how the quote first originated? He wrote it like this. Preachers say, do as I say, not as I do. And this might sting for all of us who proclaim the good news of Jesus in any way at all, lest we not become people who simply go, do as I say, not as I do. So in light of Solomon and the book of Proverbs, the wrestle becomes, how do we reconcile the inner and outer character of a person like Solomon? Or what does wisdom in action actually look like? Because it seems at some point in time, Solomon lost track of that. Walter Brueggemann states this about Solomon. He says he had traded a vision of freedom for the reality of security. He had banished the neighbor for the sake of reducing everyone to servants. He had replaced covenanting with consuming and all promises had been reduced to tradable commodities. All of this lands us back at Proverbs 22, one and two. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. The rich and poor have this in common. The Lord made them both. You see, one of the challenges I see for the American church is is our tendency towards behavior modification and the accumulation of wealth and influence that is devoid of a life centered in Jesus who invites us to carry our cross, right? It's all flipped upside down. That's, I think, one reason we're drawn to Solomon. He's like, he got it all. Ah, but he sacrificed his reputation. He wasn't held in high esteem. There's this sociologist named Christian Smith, and he coined a term to describe all of this known as moral therapeutic deism. Y'all familiar with that? (laughs) Right, moral therapeutic deism. Moral, morality, therapeutic, feels good, deism, a God. And moral therapeutic deism is this. It's about a belief in a particular kind of God, one who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in one's affairs, especially affairs in which one would prefer not to have God involved. Most of the time, the God of this faith keeps a safe distance. And so in summary, this way of living fleshes itself out like this. Be just good enough to feel good about who you are, thus living numb to the evils of the world and to the goodness of God's kingdom. Essentially, when you ascribe to moral therapeutic deism, you are just numb. And so we can receive all the wisdom of God, and yet if we focus entirely on ourselves, living with little regard for the great commandment of Jesus to love God and to love our neighbors, our interior lives will slowly erode. And sadly, the practice of wisdom for selfish gain distorts the gift God intended wisdom to be. 
Old Testament scholar Bruce Watke summarizes the teaching of Proverbs this way. The righteous are willing to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Which again, in light of King Solomon who authored this book, that's a really unique reality. When Proverbs as a whole is dislodged from the biblical narrative and no longer seen through the lens of Jesus, what did Jesus come to do through his life, death, and resurrection, right? It becomes the handbook for moral therapeutic deism. And it's no longer tethered to Jesus himself. The Proverbs have to be tethered to Jesus, aligned with Jesus, connected to Jesus for them to actually implant a wisdom for a way forward in this world. But what does then wisdom that loves God and exists for the sake of others look like? Or maybe more apt for our current cultural moment, how do we reclaim such wisdom? How do we get that back? And I think there's a metaphor that's pretty, pretty spot on for all of this. You might be familiar with a term dry farming, dry farming. So dry farming is, is this idea. It was, it was created in France, I believe, uh, in, a, in the world of vineyards, right? Producing uh, grapes for wine. And so what dry farming is, is, and there's probably somebody in here who knows way more about dry farming than I, I do. And I acknowledge that. And please correct me afterwards at a safe distance with your mask on. Um, so, so dry farming is this idea where your, your crop your vineyard is, is watered by artificial forms of watering at first, right? You have, you have an irrigation system or a hose or a sprinkler or whatever it might be going on. And so the, the work of dry farming is to slowly remove the artificial sources of watering and allow your crops to access the natural forms of watering, or if it's a biblical metaphor, the living water. And so what happens is when you artificially water your crop, the ball, the root, it gets all tied up kind of like an onion because it has no reason to grow down deep. It just keeps taking what's on the surface. And so in the, the work of dry farming, what happens is you have to actually create a plan in which you slowly remove the artificial watering so that the crop does not die. So at first, you would probably take a little bit back and the farmer who's doing this transition would find that they actually lose some of their yield during that first season. So you have to sacrifice up front that you won't get the, the crop that you anticipate. Maybe another season of that, maybe another season of that. There's a story of this farmer in Northern California who did this and, and he was probably lost about 45% of his yield but his crop was growing healthy in a unique way. And a rain came through early in the season and everybody else, it rotted out their crops. But because the roots of his crop were so deep, he was able to harvest that. Beyond that, a couple more years down the road, he was back up to what he was yielding before. Never more, but a richer, fuller, more expansive fruit. The best fruit in the area. And so I think when we think about dry farming, we begin to ask ourselves, what are the ways in which we've been receiving artificial watering? If you look at the life of Solomon, you see all of these things that he began to water his life with that he thought would fulfill him. 
or make him known. And it slowly depleted his root system. If you think about the church at large, there's an American church right now. What are the ways in which this season of COVID, if you will, might in fact allow us to pay attention to the ways in which we've been artificially watering ourselves? What do we need to let loose so that we might grow deep down into God's love? What would that look like? How do we reclaim the depth of wisdom found in God himself? You see, because what happens is wisdom becomes distorted mostly when it's formed in the crucible of individualism when it gets isolated by itself. Eugene Peterson says it like this from his book, Practice Resurrection. Brace yourself. He says this, he says, individualism is the growth stunting, maturity inhibiting habit of understanding growth as an isolated self project. Individualism is selfism with a swagger. The individualist is the person who is convinced that he or she can serve God without dealing with God. This is the person who is sure that he or she can love neighbors without knowing their names. This is the person who assumes that getting ahead involves leaving other people behind. This is the person who, having gained competence in knowing God or people or world, uses that knowledge to take charge of God or people, or the world. You see Solomon tied up in that, don't you? You might have to ask yourself, do we see ourselves tied up in all of that? How do we steward the wisdom of God for the liberation of us all? How do we reclaim this wisdom? Will we incline our lives to imitate Jesus? Or as the apostle Paul reminds us while writing to the Philippians from prison, no less, here's what he says. Philippians 2, verse four. Don't look out only for your self-interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If God grants you wisdom, will you pour it out like Jesus did? You see, we're encouraged to ask for wisdom when we need it. James 1.5 tells us, oh, right? But we're also called upon to steward such wisdom with great faith and an undivided loyalty to God. We cannot have that loyalty divided. We must act in accordance with the way of Jesus. But the honest reality is this, how many of us treat wisdom like some personal commodity, stashing it in our minds because we read some good books or leveraging it for our own gain? How true does that become of us? 
Many of us treat God's gift of wisdom like some misaligned version of going to the gym. Week after week, we show up to the gym, sit before somebody and they tell us some good stuff about fitness and nutrition. We read a solid book about working out. And then each day we head home. But we never actually work out. We just keep showing up week after week for a good talk on food and nutrition, another good book on healthy habits and how to work out. And we head home. And then six months down the road or a year or many years, we look at our bodies and all we've done is atrophy. See, God says, ask for wisdom. We're all created to receive God's wisdom. And God desires for all of us to leverage said wisdom for the sake of others. But this is where Solomon went wrong. He atrophied when he lost sight of stewarding God's wisdom for the people he was called to serve. This is why Jurgen Moltmann reminds us that Christian identification with the crucified Christ means solidarity with the sufferings of the poor and the misery of both the oppressed and the oppressors. So where do we find this God of wisdom? Where is this God of wisdom located on a cross, surrounded by the oppressed and oppressors in humility giving all he is for the sake of everyone? That's where God is located. And once we locate God in this other-centric loving humility, we can once again be awakened to the role of wisdom in our lives. Locate God there on that cross, surrounded by the oppressed and the oppressors, offering himself and love and humility. And there we will again be awakened to the role of wisdom in our lives. And surprisingly to some, it has little to do with how much bigger our palace will become. We cannot let the artificial watering stunt our growth of learning to become like Jesus. We can't let the roots of our lives ball up and never grow down deep into the people God intends us to be because when our roots grow down deep, they grow down into God's love. You see, Jesus died without gold or silver, but instead hung high in esteem. With the greatest reputation the world has ever known. We cannot let the book of Proverbs become untethered from the person of Jesus. So now I wanna set this before you. The opportunity for you to hear from the spirit of God afresh I want you to come to the gym and receive what is offered to you so that you can go and live that thing out there, right? Let us ask what must happen to us as followers of Jesus in order for our roots to grow down in God's love. Be prepared to ask God that. What must happen for us to humbly admit we have centered ourselves in place of the life Jesus has called us to, one in which we love God and our neighbors. What must happen in our inner lives for us to steward the gift of God's wisdom so that we might break the cycle of numbness and awaken to the things that God wants to change and the goodness of God's kingdom that is already here. 
Because then we might know our place in the world filled with the reminder that God is for you, Jesus is with you, and the spirit of God is in you. So let's pause and be still in the presence of God and let's listen to the spirit as we give God the last word. And then I'll close us in prayer. Would you just take a moment to listen Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We rest in this moment attentive to your presence. Give us ears to hear you. God, grant us wisdom for whatever it is that we're encountering individually or collectively in our lives. And may we steward that wisdom with great faith faith and an undivided loyalty to you. Would that wisdom grow us deep into your love and awaken us to the needs of those around us? Would we join your son, Jesus, who is with us as we walk out of this place or wherever it is we are today and we encounter the world around us in whatever way we encounter it, Would we have the awareness that your spirit is continually inviting us to join in the goodness of your kingdom? Again, give us eyes to see what it is you're up to. Give us ears to hear your spirit within us. And may we walk upright in the true identity you've given us as we join you in healing this world. we pray at the end of every Kaleo gathering in this season, we have a a prayer of longing for the Lord's Supper because we have not been able to be together. And so I'll pray that for us as we close. You can just let the words wash over you or you can read them along on the screen. Lord Jesus, our hearts brim with longing today. We long for one another and for the day when we might gather again as your body around the table you host for us. We long for your table spread out for us in the wilderness where we feast upon the abundance of your goodness and drink from the abundant streams of your living water. It is your body given to us and your blood shed for us that strengthens our hearts and satisfies our thirst. 
But until the day of our joyous reunion, teach us to lament this absence in our lives. Teach us to long for you, for the gathering of your body, for your kingdom, and for the day you will come again. For on that day, you have promised to place before us the great banquet table, and we will partake in a feast with you and all God's people. We pray this prayer of longing in the name of Jesus, who is the bread of life and the cup of salvation. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.